Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Valenca Valenzuela was born on Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead, which seems fitting for someone who grew up to hold space both for those who are dying and for those left behind grieving those deaths. Valenca is the volunteer and group coordinator at Dougie Center, where she supports children, teens, young adults, and their adult family members both before and after a death. In her work as a death doula, she supports people who are facing the end of their lives. She's also an instructor for the Going With Grace program, readying others to do similar work. Valenka comes to this work as someone with a lot of lived experience with grief and end of life. When she was 16, her father died of cancer. As an adult, she was with her grandmother at the end of her life. A trip she took to Ireland to connect with her maternal lineage solidified her passion for working as a death doula and starting conversations about the end of life. Valenka shares about what it was like to be 16 and grieving for her father, what she's learned from working with kids and families in our peer grief support groups, and ways that we can all be better prepared for the end of life. Valenka is insightful, funny, and somehow finds a way to make talking about death engaging and even energizing. I'm really grateful to have her as my colleague at Dougie Center, and I hope you'll enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Valenka, thank you so much for coming on Grief Out Loud today. It's been a while since I've had another Dougie Center staff member as a guest, so I'm excited for our conversation. Thank you for having me, Jana. I'm so excited too. Can we start off like just introduce yourself the way you would at one of our peer grief support groups at Dougie Center. Yeah. So my name is Valenka. I use she, her pronouns, and my dad died from cancer when I was 16. Tell us a little bit about your dad. Um, my father was a Chicano who was born and raised in East LA. He led a pretty hard life. He came from severe poverty and both of his parents had died when he was in childhood. Um, and so he, he struggled in life. He struggled with alcoholism and lots of different types of addictions. And he actually spent a lot of time incarcerated throughout his life. So I, um, spent my childhood actually visiting him in prison. And so that's kind of a big part of the story. Um, he was incarcerated for selling drugs and I would visit him every other Sunday. So we had, uh, we had a connection for sure. I, you know, um, his life was complicated, but my love for him was not complicated. And we had a really affectionate and loving relationship. Um, and then he got out of prison because he got out of, for medical leave, he had cancer and then he died a year and a half later. You mentioned that both of you, that your dad had both of his parents die when he was a child. What did you learn about grief from him? Mm. Well, such an interesting question because I think about my own grief journey as a child, as a teenager as well. 
And I think about how um, I led with a lot of anger and apathy at the time. And I didn't know that that was grief. You know, I, nobody around me knew that that was grief. Um, And I can only imagine that that might be why he was the way he was, you know, why he um, went down the road with addictions and, um, and just kind of led the life that he did. I think he also had unrecognized grief. So it was less about anything he directly would talk to you about, just more looking at kind of how things unfolded for him and wondering what the overlay may have been with his own grief as a child. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't talk to me about it. Um, other than he said that he loved his mother, but he didn't really talk to me about all of that very much, but I can only now knowing, uh, you know, in, in my life as a 40 something year old now, um, I can now imagine why his behaviors were the way he was and, and how that connected to his grief and, and then seeing how that played out in my life as well. You mentioned anger and apathy as kind of the two main ways that your grief presented. And what else was it like to be a 16-year-old, a 17-year-old, an 18-year-old kind of heading into young adulthood now grieving the death of your dad? Yeah. Um, it felt pretty isolating, actually. I didn't know many other kids in my high school who actually had a parent who had died. Um, and so I just felt pretty alone in that space. Um, none of the teachers or staff knew what to do. In fact, the day after my dad died, I, um, went to my vice principal's office and I said, my father died yesterday and I'm coming in to get some schoolwork because I'm going to go to California for a couple weeks to go to his funeral and be with family. And she looked at me and she said, do you really think with the way your grades are that you should go to California right now? (sighs) Yeah. So definitely did not feel supported by her. <laughs> and that was kind of the same for all the staff. Um, so it just felt really isolating. What role do you think that the the fact that your dad was in prison or just like the nature of the relationship or what people assumed to be true about your relationship, what role do you think that played in how they responded to you in your grief after he died? Yes. Oh, I'm so glad that you asked that because I really do think this might be a case for disenfranchised grief in a way, because my vice principal did know what my dad's story was. She did know that he had been in prison um, and that he was a Chicano. I mean, all these things. Right. And so her comment to me really is kind of like, well, how important is that death? You know, like, do you really need to go to his funeral? It's like, I just told you my dad died and I want to go to his funeral. And you're asking me if that's important. Like, yeah. So it felt like kind of a disenfranchised grief. Yeah, it reminds me so much of the work that, you know, we do in our roles at Dougie Center, but that needs to just happen all the time of reminding people that we can't make assumptions about what someone's reaction to a death is going to be based on what we think to be true about maybe who the person was, if it's a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or someone who from our perspective might seem more distant or if the relationship was complicated in some way or whatever it might be that we instantly can go to this place of like, well, for me in my life, if that were who that I would feel this way about grief. And then we put that assumption on kids or teens or other adults and really dismisses the reality of someone's internal experience. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think people assume that because my father was in prison, that I didn't have much of a relationship with him. And that just wasn't the case. Um, we had a really deep, affectionate, loving relationship. Um, and to be honest, I think it was a blessing that he was in prison for those 10 years because I got a sober father. He wasn't sober before prison. And then I got a sober father that whole time. Um, we talk on the phone all the time and he'd send me letters all the time and cards. And it was as good as a relationship could be in that situation. Um, and I often say that I feel like I got, I received more love from him than a lot of kids receive from dads that they're growing up in a house in a quote unquote normal way, you know? So all things that we don't know, if we don't take a moment to pause and ask what someone's relationship is like. Yeah, exactly. So Valenka, when you started as a volunteer at Ducky Center, which was 13, four, how many years ago? I think 13 years ago is when I'd start. Yeah. 2009. So you volunteered primarily in our group for kids and families who have had someone die of a violent death. And I'm just curious of like 10 plus years of being with those families. What did you learn from them about grief? Hmm. It's interesting with that group because I feel like grief and trauma can be so intricately woven. Um, you know, not only do those families come in and grieve the death of this human, they're also now navigating their sense of safety in the world. You know, a lot of those families, a lot of the times the person has, you know, was shot at a park or at a 7-Eleven or at their place of work. And so, you know, the kids oftentimes are scared to go to certain parts of town even after this. And so I do think often about kind of the more chaotic energy that can surround um, a family after a violent death. They oftentimes have um, the court system that they have to navigate. The media gets all up in their faces if this is a more, you know, high profile kind of event, even if when it's not that high profile, they still are right there. Um, but what I learned from them is that they still can have a sense of connection and grounding. I mean, I, I love, you know, at every group at Dougie Center, we always say who died and how they died during check-in. And I specifically really love it for this group because I can see the kids making the connections when they're, they look at each other, when each one goes around and says, well, my dad was shot by a gun. And then the next person, my dad was shot by a gun. And then the next one, my mom was shot by it, you know, and they all look at each other like, oh, wow, yours was too. And, um, because I think there can be stigma and extra isolation around a violent death that feels so important to me that that connection that they know they're not alone. So the other part I really wanted to talk to you about in today's conversation is, you know, I don't, this might happen for you, but oftentimes when I tell people, tell people what I do, that I work at Dougie center and kids have had someone die. It's like, Oh my gosh, your job must be so hard. <laughs> and I say, Oh, you know, I change the subject, but for you, you're in like two realms of the world <laughs> where people might be like, that's must be so hard. And that must be even harder maybe because <laughs> here you are supporting the grief of kids and teens and families. But in your other grief land life, you are a death doula 
And, you know, that's a term that I know about because I've had death doulas on the show, but I don't know if that's a term that's very familiar for a lot of people. So I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about what that means and how did you come to say like, grief's not enough. I want to do the death side of things too. Yes. I love talking about death doulas. So also just so everybody knows there's different terms because I think that, you know, we're starting to get more known um, out kind of in the ether. And so sometimes people call themselves end of life doulas or end of life companions, death midwives. So there's different terms. Um, sometimes when I'm talking to clients, I may use end of life doula, but when I'm talking to colleagues or just in general, I like the term death doula cause it's catchy. <laughs> so I think that's why we use that. Cause I know some people are like death doula. What does that mean? What it means is, you know, we're a holistic provider um, of all kinds of different things. Anything that's kind of non-medical at the end of life, uh, we can help people prepare ahead of time. So with paperwork, um, planning, pre-planning for ceremonies, you know, anything that you'd want to kind of quote unquote, get out of the way so that your loved ones don't have to worry about it after you've died. So we can help with any pre-planning. We can also help with legacy projects and meaning making. So this can be like an art project or a oral history project or making like an ethical will, which I love. It's not a will per se, it's a space for somebody to share their values and their hopes and their wisdom about life and kind of pass that down to the next generation. We can also help with family support and advocacy. We will never make decisions for the family, but we can help them to navigate those decisions. Um, and then we can help with hands-on, like during the vigil, that's really kind of my favorite part is sitting vigil and being there for the actual death. That's the sacred work to me. And then I'd say the biggest part is right now, especially because we are a newer profession, but I'd say, um, education is, is the biggest part, you know, um, we are trying to have a movement here, you know, we're trying to change how we do death and dying. And so sometimes I call it like the death doula movement. So with that comes a lot of education about the history of death and dying. It was just over a hundred years ago barely a hundred years ago that we did death and dying within the family. We did it within our homes and everyone was present, even the children. And it was like a little bit after the industrial revolution that the funeral industry and medical industry started kind of booming. And so it put death and dying into the hands of the quote unquote professionals and out of the hands of the families. And I think we're, we're seeing problems from that. Because um, I think that being present for the person who's dying helps with your grief. I think that we have a lot of death anxiety and death phobia. And I think that's because we've become so far removed from death and dying. And so to try and educate and help people to understand our history, hopefully will help people to feel a little bit more empowered to to put a toe in, into that world. I think you asked me what brought me to this work as well. The short answer on that is my ancestors, but I'll, I'll go into a little more detail. Um, so first of all, I think it was in the stars. I was born on the day of the dead. So I think it was in the stars that I work with grief and loss and death and dying. 
my experience of having my grandfather and my father die all in one year. They both died of terminal illnesses and kind of watching that happen, put a seed in there early on. But it really wasn't until my grandmother, my dear, dear, beloved grandmother, Jane, died uh, 11 years ago, and I was present with her at the end of life. And it was a profound experience. And she told one of the last things she ever said to me was that I was an angel sent to her. And I can only kind of guess what she meant by that. And I think it was because of the way I was helping her at the end. And so that profoundly touched me. And at that moment is when I started thinking of this term death duel. I had found it online somewhere because it really wasn't known hardly at all 11 years ago. So I was already in the grief and loss world for a few years at that point, but I was like, I can't be the death person, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like that just feels, no, I, I can't. And so I kept kind of pushing it away and pushing it away. And then I had this pilgrimage to Ireland a couple of years ago, and I had some friends move from Portland to Ireland. So my plan was to go visit them. My sweet grandmother, Jane, she was hundred percent Irish. Um, and so I kept wanting, you know, to get more information about our ancestors from Ireland. I wanted to make sure when I go to Ireland that I maybe get to walk the lands they were on or something like that. I just wanted something. And unfortunately, there's just nobody alive anymore that had that story. So my uncle said, well, why don't you go on ancestry.com and see if you can find something? So I go on ancestry.com and I put in some surnames and all of a sudden five different generations pop up. It's so funny. Every time I tell this story, I feel like I'm doing a commercial for (laughs) (laughs) ancestry.com because it's a real success story. I'm telling you. Listeners, this is not product placement. (laughs) It's not. (laughs) I do not get paid for this. So I put in their names and um, my friends who moved to Ireland moved to this little village called Belly Dehob in West Cork. I didn't know this little village. It, you know, it's a small little village of like maybe 200 people or something like that. So it was kind of a random place for my friends to end up in. So anyway, when I start clicking on the names of my ancestors, I noticed that they'd all been born and died and lived their whole lives in Belly Dehob. In that tiny little village. In the tiny little village that my friends were in. Yeah. So incredible. So incredible. I I couldn't believe it. And it was so funny when I went there though, and I was telling all the locals about my story and all of them were just like, oh yeah. Like they weren't surprised at all. They're like, that's (laughs) the magic of Ireland. (laughs) Uh, But it was incredible. And so while I was there, there were certain places that I drive around to and start getting really emotional. Like, I mean, really crying and being like, I want my mom here right now. And like, it was so interesting. And then when I got back from Ireland, I started digging in a little more into the family research. And I found that the places I was at when I was getting the most emotional was my, my grandmother's grandmother, her name was Catherine was born in that area. And she was the one that moved to Massachusetts. So she was the one that brought the Irish people to, um, to the States. And uh, she ended up dying when she was in her thirties from typhoid fever. And she had an eight-year-old daughter named Mary, who was my grandmother's mom. And then my grandmother's mom, Mary died when my grandmother was a girl, a young girl as well. So I started putting together all these early young deaths. My 
my father had both of his parents die. My grandmother had these long matrilineal line of death, young mother death. And it just, it just hit me at that moment. It hit me that like, oh, wow, I am supposed to do this death work. And I never looked back after that. And it's been like full steam ahead since then. (laughs) (laughs) So Valenka, now that you've been in both of these worlds, you've been doing death doula work since around 2019, you've been at Dougie Center since 2009 in the grief world. What would you say feels similar and and different about those realms? Um, I think that they really go hand in hand. I think because my my work really started in the grief land, especially in, in Dougie center land. Um, you know, I had only started in this world a couple years before Dougie center. I actually, my very first social work job was at a skilled nursing facility. And I would sit sometimes with people who were dying and they didn't have any family members coming in with them. And so I'd be with them. Um, but shortly after that, I had started with Dougie center. I feel like Dougie center has been a huge part of how I hold space for people in the death world as well. Um, Learning the skill of reflection, which is a huge part of the Dougie Center, um, has been so wonderful in being able to hold the space in the death world, right? So when you reflect, even just like simple reflections of mirroring what somebody's saying, they feel so seen and heard. And so I definitely use that skill. And then on the flip side, I've used my skills as a death doula and understanding the history of death and dying when I'm at the Dougie center. So for instance, um, a few weeks ago, there was a call. I had my, my phone shift and there was a call coming in and, uh, it was a mom who was worried that she had scarred her young daughter by having her present during her grandfather's death. And I mean, this mom was really worried. Both the parents were really worried. And after she described what was happening for the daughter, it very, to me, definitely felt like a, you know, a normal child grieving, uh, having that experience. And so I explained to her this kind of history of death and dying. The one that I just explained to you a few minutes ago about how it used to be in the hands of the family and not in the hands of the professionals. And that children were present all the time. I explained this to her and she, I I can't tell you how relieved she was. She was so relieved. She, we were on the phone for maybe 15 minutes or so. And she said at the end, she said, I feel like I just had a big therapy session. (laughs) And she thanked me profusely and uh, that felt so good. And so I just can see how both my work at Dougie Center helps to inform my work uh, with death dual clients and then my death dual work and understanding where we're at with death and dying can help the people that come to Dougie center. So another term that started popping up around the time I started hearing death doula end of life doula was this idea of a good death. Mm -hmm. And I, I know I had a conversation last year, I think, with Oceana Sawyer, who's also another death doula. And we Mm -hmm. talked quite a bit about what does a good death mean to her um, and speaking a lot about the inequities that happen for people at the end of life, depending on racism and oppression and economic advantage, things like that. And I just wondered for you, what is your kind of understanding of that concept of having a good death? Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad that you and Oceana were able to dive into the good death and and as far as... um, racism and 
gender expression and all of those kind of things go, because there's definitely a whole topic on all of that. Um, but yeah, a good death is something we often talk about in the death doula world. For me, I really like to focus on, I mean, this is an interesting, right? Because we talked about the violent death group a bit. And then now we've also talked about, you know, end of life in a more kind of terminal illness type of way. And so those juxtapositions, right? A lot of people can think about what is a good death when you think of those is, is a good death, the, the one that's sudden and quick, but maybe violent, or is the good death, the one that's long and drawn out and maybe really painful. It's so hard to say which one is a good death. And so what I have really come to, um, is that a good death is really tied to a good life, not in the material sense, you know, at all but a good life that was kind of lived authentically. So I, I'm an instructor for the Going With Grace program. And I also graduated from the Going With Grace program. And it profoundly changed me in so many ways. What I really grasped more than almost anything else from coming out of that training program was that contemplating death helps you to contemplate life. And so when you're always thinking that like death is there and befriending it, you're also thinking about like, well, how do I want to live my life? And it, it changed me so much. Like I, I no longer will put up with certain things or I no longer will put off certain things. I want to live my life right now for, you know, in the ways that are authentic and intentional um, because, you know, death is inevitable. And so how, how do we want to live? There's also an idea that we often die similarly to the way that we lived. So I don't know how true this is, but it's an interesting concept. The way that we navigate life could very well be the way that we navigate our death. So someone was telling me about, um, that David Bowie right before he died, put on a concert for all of his fans he lived his life for music and then he wanted to die with that as well. You know, I also think about like my beloved hero or heroine, uh, Frida Kahlo, who in her dying year, you know, she spent most of her life in, in bed because she'd had polio and she had an awful accident that had crippled her. And that's where a lot of her artwork came from, but she, in her death, she had people carry her bed, the same bed that she did all of her art. And, and they had this big kind of art gallery event and they carried her while she was in the bed around the art gallery. So for one last time, that's kind of the concept for me is like, are you living your life authentically and intentionally? And will that also be the way that you look at your death? And to me, that's a good death. And it seems so important, again, to just acknowledge that the opportunity to live authentically and intentionally is oftentimes thwarted or obstacles get put in the way of that that are outside of people's individual control. You know, and I think about, yeah. you know, folks in my in the queer community and how living authentically can oftentimes be a dangerous 
proposition. Uh, and so just thinking about how these things are over, over, always overlapping, you know, that we may not always have the opportunity to be like, okay, I know death's coming for me. So I'm yeah. going to do all these things in my life to make sure I'm seen fully when that, that may not be safe or possible for certain people. And thinking about other ways that if we are, you know, sitting with the idea that death is waiting for us at some point, what are other things that we're doing maybe and how we interact with other people or interact with ourselves that could um, fall more into that realm? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that's why this idea of good death is so important and why we have this conversation, because what you just said is, is so important, right? So for people in the queer community, people of color, um, those aren't privileges that they have to just think about like, oh yeah, I'm gonna make sure I do my art at the end or whatever, right? Those kind of things. And so I think we need to continue to have those conversations, um, not only in the general sense, but including these, you know, from like a social justice standpoint, including queer folks and including BIPOC folks and all of this so that we can have them also have a good death, you know? That, that, that's the idea, that's the movement here. The movement towards death and dying is all about, you know, there's not equality in our life. And so then there's not equality in our death either. I think too about the idea of autonomy mm. and where, where can people have opportunities for autonomy at the end of their life and to have, you know, I think about this death doula work and the education that you all are doing and that letting people know that there's other options than maybe what we have grown up thinking is the only option to do, whether that's a treatment plan for a particular type of illness or a certain type of funeral or a way of needing to be buried or whatever it might be, just offering up additional options so people can have more autonomy and choice and hopefully have some opportunity to feel more authentic. And if they have an end of life that they are anticipating, have an opportunity to make more uh, decisions that feel in alignment with who they are and how they want to spend their last days or how they want their body to be taken care of after their life ends. So uh, one question I have, because we, I feel like we've already touched on this a little bit, but if you're, so there's folks who are facing the end of their life or people who are just living their life now, knowing death is coming at some point. And then there's people who know someone who is more aware of the end of their life coming sooner rather than later. And so thinking about coming to the end of our conversation and seeing if there's some suggestions you might have for people of like from a more intentional place, is there something that we can be doing as we live our lives to be feel maybe more prepared for the end of life? Yeah, two really good questions. So a couple of things about how we can be more prepared. I think honestly, having more conversations about it, being more open to talking about death can help with the death anxiety, right? So the more we are open to the idea that it is there instead of denying it, because I think it's the denial of it that can also really bring the anxiety because it, I mean, it's part of our life cycle. So we can't, we can't deny it. It's literally going to happen to all of us. And so the more conversations we can have are the better. And, you know, I'm not saying it's easy by any means. I, I can talk like this and make it sound like, oh yeah, let's just have a conversation about death all the time. It's fine. And maybe that's because I do have conversations about death all the time, but you know, I'm a mother, I have children and the thought of my earthly relationship ending with them brings me great anxiety. Absolutely. I mean, I, 
I don't like to think about me either leaving them or them leaving me. That's really hard. Um, but I just do know that I, I feel more grounded the more that I can talk openly about death. Um, and then also, you know, it's never too early to prepare, like to do advanced directives or do a will or do things that, um, cause that preparation right there, not only helps yourself, but it helps your family. You know, how many times I'm sure you've heard over the years, families that come into the Dougie center. I've heard it from families in the Dougie Center. I've heard it from families in the death doula work that, you know, some of the biggest headaches is they're in that acute grief stage, right? And they have to think about paperwork and logistics and planning and all of these things. There's so much to think about and they're in that foggy brain. And so the more we can prepare ahead of time is such a gift to our loved ones who will be helping us or wrapping things up at the end. Um, so, so those are two things that I just say is like prepare and also have discussions when you can, the more we're all talking about it, I think it hopefully can collectively lower anxiety a bit. Um, and is there a suggestion you might have for maybe a family member or a friend who is supporting someone who is facing the end of their life? So I think understanding that, that it's that person who is facing the end of life, it's their death, right? It's not your death, it's their death. Um, and remembering to meet them where they're at. So oftentimes, you know, family members have their own thoughts and opinions about what should or shouldn't be happening. You know, understandably, you want to try and do everything you can to keep someone alive, Um, or others don't want to see the suffering anymore. So they wish their person would just let go. You know, in some instances, the dying person may want to use medical aid in dying, or maybe on the flip side, the person wants to get in some experimental trial because maybe there's one last miracle and one last hope. And you as the supporting family member or friend might not agree with what they're doing, but just remembering that, that you are their advocate you are their support and that this is their death. You will die someday and you can do it the way you want. Although we don't have control necessarily how it's going to go down, but it, but this is the other person's death. You know, we can hope that those around us will support us in making those decisions and, and being able to live out our last days in the way that we wished to do that. It seems to go back to that idea of autonomy. And yes. letting people who are having this experience be able to make their own decisions to the best of their capacity. Absolutely. I like that word autonomy. That feels important. Well, Valenka, thank you so much for your time today, for answering some of my random questions, for <laughs> sharing a lot with our listeners about, you know, the wealth of knowledge and experience you have, both from supporting people who are grieving a death to supporting people who are facing their own death and also their family members, uh, in that process. So just really grateful for your time and for your insights today. Thanks for asking me, Jenna. And listeners out there each and every time, I thank you for being part of our community because this show would not mean anything if you weren't out there tuning in. So appreciate the times that you share an episode with friends or family, or if you reach out to me, which you can reach me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. I'd love to hear from you and what the show might mean to you. 
Yeah, D-O-U-G-Y is also our website where you can find all of our free resources. We have tip sheets, activity sheets. Um, we also have a bookstore with other resources, and it's where you'll find all of the past episodes of Grief Out Loud. And I'm also excited to share with you that this podcast is sponsored in part by the Chester Stephan Endowment Fund. So thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>